I went to see a top specialist here in New York, actually, who I didn't realize how well-intentioned she was, which she was. But she told me I had to stop singing, that the high notes were going to kill me, that there was nothing in the medical literature that backed up any sort of connection between singing or arias and pulmonary hypertension. And it made me happy if if I was only going to live a few more years or months because I was diagnosed with a stage four case. I was going to be happy, gosh darn it. I was going to do what I loved and I was not going to be ripped violently from this thing that I had dreamed of doing my whole life. Charity Dick grew up the middle child of 11 children in her family in Denver. When she was five years old, her older sister took her to a local opera performance and she was transported, swept away. Something changed inside of her and she also knew that she didn't just want to listen. She wanted to become somebody who could create this. That brought her deeper and deeper into music and eventually becoming a student of music through some quirks of circumstance and maybe the universe guiding her in different ways. She found herself studying in her the, the late part of her teens in Hungary and then beginning to perform all over Europe until a profound moment that rocked her world, rocked her health and would forever change her life. She realized she was struggling deeply with her health at the same time that her career seemed to be skyrocketing and discovered that she had something called pulmonary hypertension that eventually led to a double lung transplant, which took her back into the career, but also again failed and led to yet a second. In today's conversation, we dive into this journey. She has detailed it beautifully in a new book called The Encore. We touch down in some of the major moments, both the early awakenings some of the struggles, moments that kind of rocked her world, opened her eyes, challenged every fiber of her being to rise and also delivered moments of grace and awakening and love and connection. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** 
are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You went to college very young as well. Yeah, I was a baby. I started college when I was 14. And there was a little Jesuit school down the street. And my other siblings had started college young. but But I think I did feel this need to prove myself. In big families, oftentimes, you're clumped together in sort of mini families within the family. And I was the baby of the first clump. And so I was, I'm number, a number four or five, depending on how you count it. And I, I really just felt compelled to show that I was as, as smart and able as my siblings. And, and so I took the, the requisite tests and, and I enrolled in university nearby and, I took it very seriously. What, I, what are your parents thinking at the like at the age of fourteen? You're like, I'm ready for college. Yeah, they they, they did not think I was. <laughs> they did not think I was, and they said, "Oh, charity, that's great." But I really think my mother, my mother, who's amazing, but she said, "I really think that you should just start at a regular age," which made me feel even more like they thought less of me than my siblings, and that was what really made me feel, you see, I'm a contrarian. That evidenced itself later in my life too. But when she said that, I really felt that I needed to start college. And so I started studying very intently and intensely for the tests. I'd been working as a journalist for Reuters in the year before. They had a teen news bureau and I got hooked into that by a friend of a friend. And and my writing was was pretty good. And and so I, I felt like this was something I could take on. It was harder at that point than anything I had done. But I found it a relief once I got to college that I didn't have to worry about boys, that I didn't have to worry about socializing, that I could just focus on what I was there for, which was to learn. And that focus evidenced itself in my grades and in the other things that that I did. I think my classmates probably thought I was crazy. I'd come to school in like my khakis and my little loafers and a and a blazer with a briefcase. One time I went up to I, I was very involved in student life and one of the things I wanted to do was they didn't have a music major and I wanted to make sure that was established. And so I was waiting outside the office of the Dean of Student Life who had heard there were young students wandering around campus. And I was the young student wandering around campus. And I, I looked a little older than than my age. And he was there was a professor in there going off about these younger students that he had heard about. You know, this is terrible. You know, this is supposed to be a safe place, not a place where the other kids are worried about molesting a girl on campus. La, 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 la. It brings down the experience of everyone. And as he left the office, he pointed to me and he said, this is exactly who this hurts. And he walked away because he didn't even know who I was, but it sparked some controversy that I was there. But yeah, it was a wonderful experience. I loved a Jesuit education. I became very close to to my 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 priests, um, the the president of the university and I became he, he became like a almost like a second father to me. But yeah, I, I studied politics and economics and and we established a music major by the time I left the school and a minor as a precursor to that major. So I did graduate with a music minor and um 
and then I went to work on political campaigns. Yeah, right. So that <laughs> it's like straight into politics after that. Yeah. Um, had, was there a thought of trying to make music the center thing, or in your mind, it's like that was something that you loved, but it wasn't necessarily your your path? And so it was something I loved, but it, I didn't feel like it had been something I had been able to study seriously enough to have as a vocation. And so it also wasn't practical. And and I knew that. And coming from a big family where my parents were very much dreamers, you hear about inventors like Steve Wozniak. You don't hear about the tinkers who pepper our, our country and who create incredible things every day, but aren't particularly successful inventors. And my my father, while brilliant, didn't have much business sense. And he fell into that, that category. And so practicality, especially at that point in my life, seemed very important. So I thought I would go to law school and become a lawyer and, and go down that track. And I was so sad working on campaigns. And I didn't know why. And at one point, I started singing so we could get into rest homes. People were sick of politics in New Hampshire. And so I asked I asked one of the event coordinators for these for the senior center if if I sang a few arias, if they'd let our candidate in to speak. And they said, Well, I guess we could we could make that work. And when I was done, there was this terrific little old lady who took my face in her hands. And she said, Why is a girl with such a pretty voice in such a dirty business? And, and I really I didn't think that politics was a dirty business. I still, I still, despite everything that's happened, I don't. I just think they're honest about what goes on and politics play a major role in everything we do, whether it's business or entertainment or academia or even as, as students, politics play a big role. And so I, I think at least, at least they tell you what's going on there. So you don't wonder, you know, why Why was I passed over for this? Why didn't this happen? It's politics, you know, it's politics. But after about six months of campaigns, I knew I would hate myself if I didn't, if I didn't at least try my hand at music. And then I, I, as I jumped into my father's city council campaign to manage the first part of that, and then they brought in another campaign manager for the, for the runoff. In the midst of that, I really knew that it was going to be my last campaign, at least for a while. I needed music in my life. I think everyone has relationships like that. Sometimes they're romantic, where where there's this this turning point where they realize, no, like this thing or this person is actually essential to who I am and what I'm going to do and where I'm going to go. And so the campaigns were a turning point in, in my life. Yeah. What was... How did you make that transition? What was the... So I applied to a number of music schools, but I applied late because I didn't, I didn't decide until... I guess I applied to Curtis and to Peabody. Which, and Curtis takes like one or two people a year. <laughs> yeah. And so I got the nicest rejection letter I'd ever received. And they're like, because I made it to their final callback. And they're like, we thought one of our coloratoras was graduating, but she's not. And we don't have space for another one because they're, they're very selective about how they, they accept singers. I had made a vow to myself not to go into debt if I was going to study music. And so that's why, that's why Curtis, because even if you go to the best conservatories in the world, it is, 
mighty hard to pay off those loans unless you marry a banker. Curtis, Curtis is free, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. And I think there are now the graduate programs at Yale are free. I think the graduate programs at Juilliard now might be free. And then there's, I think it's, is it Colburn in California? Um, is free, but they do more musical theater than they do opera. And so I applied to Peabody late and I got in, but they were out of money because if you apply after their first, their first entry period, they tell you that there aren't scholarships left. And so that was that. And then I applied to the University of Denver also late, but they have a bigger endowment to pull from and they gave me a full scholarship. So even though I wasn't too happy about it, even though they have a great program, a great program, I just didn't want to be in Denver anymore, especially after losing a campaign. It hurts. I was going to go to Denver. But then I went to my grandfather's 75th birthday party and I thought I was going to a voice lesson. And it's funny because they were speaking Hungarian in the voice lesson. And my family came to the United States via Hungary, where we'd been for many hundreds of years on my mother's side. And it was funny because even though the teacher was speaking Hungarian in the lesson, I instinctively knew what she was saying. Singing is very physical. My my Hungarian teacher used to say, Oyan sport. It's it's like a sport. And it is. And and so she would give me all of these physical prompts and I knew I knew what to do. And then she left for a moment and she told me to sit. This was in Hungary? This is in Budapest at the Opera House. And she brought in this line of distinguished looking people and they all sat down and she told me to sing what I had just sung again. And when I was done, the most distinguished looking of the people stood up and she said, you will join us at the Liszt Academy of Music this fall. And they had full funding for me. And so I stayed put. I was like layering capri pants till November. (laughs) when I got the rest of my clothes. But yeah, it was it was an incredible year. So it kind of came out of nowhere, completely unplanned. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I had been preparing for it on the one hand for a very long time, and then it just happened. I think it's a theme in my life that I do all of this preparation. I face a great deal of failure in the path that I think I am supposed to take. And then these incredible opportunities come out of nowhere and change my life over and over and over again, whether it's in love or in my career now with public speaking or with writing or, you know, on down the list. It's, it's interesting how, how sometimes we don't, we don't anticipate where opportunity will come from. The universe works in That's right. strange ways right. sometimes. That's right. So you start down this path and you spend then your time finally training you know, like officially full-time in there yes. doing this thing that you've yearned to do, and, you know, like devote all of your energy to actually learning and training your voice. Yes. Jonathan, it was so traumatic because I was there with kids who had studied for, you know, many of them 12, 14 years. I was the youngest person in the program by about seven years at the time because the voice, it should be like a fine wine. It It gets better with age. And if you train it too early, you burn out. And it's a problem that we have in the United States because we throw these kids into undergraduate programs in opera and they, bless their hearts, have no idea what their voices are going to turn into. And they start singing repertoire that's too big and and it it trashes their voice later on. And they, they also don't have the right 
the right sound for big stages, oftentimes. So, but I'm younger than my fellow students, and I'm feeling this weight of responsibilities, like my vocal cords and everything else that they tell me all the time. Like, if you sing repertoire that's too heavy, you'll kill your voice. And I'm learning a new language, and I felt so out of place until until exams that like it's essentially the midterm exam where they have everyone get on stage and sing five to six art songs and arias and then they bring everyone into a room and they give you your evaluations in public (laughs) and they are like they dismissed you know, six singers from the program Wow! while we sat there. And these, these kids, they were all extraordinarily good. You know, my teacher only had at, at Peabody, which is no slouch, you know, like conservatory. My teacher had 30 students in the entire program in Budapest. I think there were, there were 37 students and we had 12 teachers. And so every teacher only had a couple of students who they poured everything into their connections, their experience, their technique. It was a real apprenticeship. And so as, you know, the student before me was dismissed from the program and I was holding my breath because I knew I just had so far to go, but I had a benefit, which was I was the only coloratura there. And, you know, coloraturas had these very high, very agile voices. Um, the Queen of the Night, which is a very famous aria, is a coloratura role. Violetta and La Traviata, a lot of, th- there is a lot of coloratura singing in that role. Gilda, a lot, a lot of roles in the bel canto repertoire in particular are coloratura roles. And I had a very high, very agile coloratura voice. And so I'm sitting there preparing myself to be dismissed. And they loved me. And I was so happy. It was like this moment of reckoning where, where everything went my way. And I was, I was so relieved. But at the same time, my, my body was, it felt like it was falling apart. And I thought I was crazy. And I would go to bed every night and I would hear my heart's valves snapping open and closed. And I thought, I thought it was just anxiety, but I'd also get extremely winded doing almost anything from standing up to running for a train. I started having these painting spells. They actually started in Denver and I had two when I was dancing and one when I ran to catch a tram. And it was, it was this strange dichotomy where everything in my life seemed to be going better than I had planned but where my body seemed to be falling apart. And I don't know, it's, it's funny how that happens. What was, what happened that made you realize that something bigger was going on that needed to be addressed? Well, this gets into charity crazy zone and you can zone out if you want to. <laughs> but I'm, my mother, my mother went to divinity school and she's very much, I, I would consider her very much like a Mormon mystic, if that makes sense. I think that if, if we would have been brought up as Jews, that me and my mom would have been like way into Kabbalah, like way into Kabbalah. But there, are, she always taught me that like, if you have a problem that you can pray and, and receive answers. And that's a very strong tradition in Mormonism. You know, Joseph Smith, we believe, 
he prayed and he received this very vivid vision of what he was supposed to do. And I have had many very vivid experiences in, in my spiritual life. And then this was one of them. But I I had had one of these fainting spells and I came home. It was a Valentine's Day dance. I was dancing with the dishiest boy. He was so handsome. And I fainted while we were dancing. We were both very good swing dancers. And I just got carried away. And, and I thought it would be romantic to faint into the arms of the handsome man. It is not romantic at all, in case anybody is wondering. But I was, I was really concerned. And I got, I got home and I said this prayer and I pleaded with God. I said, you know, please, if I'm okay, please just let me have some sense of peace because I am, I am freaking out right now. Like this, this does not feel normal. And I felt this pit in my stomach and I opened my scriptures to the book of Kings just randomly. It, it kind of, that, that was how my mom taught me to do it. You like sort of let the scriptures fall over. It's, it's sort of like a non pagan version of a Ouija board. And it told the story of this king who had wanted to win a war and he promises to sacrifice whatever he sees. And if he, if he wins this, this war, he opens his eyes or whatever he sees first. And he opens his eyes and his virginal, lovely daughter comes in the room who is his favorite child just as he opens his eyes. And so it's this horrible story of virgin sacrifice. And, and she's given like three months to go mourn her virginity. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm a very religious person and I, I was very much a virginal, you know, I was 19 year old at the time. And I just about went like lost it. I called my mom and I told her what had happened. And I don't think she took it quite as seriously at the time, but she asked me if I wanted to come home. I didn't. I was very happy where I was. I loved being in Budapest. I had wonderful friends. I was making wonderful music. I loved my teachers and I loved my school. She said, okay, well, be careful, go see a doctor. And I think on the side, she made sure that everything was in line with my insurance just in case something was wrong. And I went to see a doctor and they told me <laughs> that I had really low blood pressure, which I did. It runs in my family and that I needed to eat more caffeine. They told me to drink coffee and I told them I didn't do that. And they said, well, then eat dark chocolate, which was fine with me and eat more salt, which salty food's delicious. So it's uh, it, like... That was also fine. A little did I know that at least the second directive was extremely dangerous for me at the time. And I didn't have any more fainting spells but most for the rest of the year. But I think it was mostly because I really moderated my physical activity. I stopped going to the tram because it was up a very, very shallow incline. And going up hills was very difficult for me. So I would walk to the bus where I couldn't see the bus stop. So I wouldn't speed up. I couldn't speed, see the bus stop till I rounded the corner. So I wouldn't know if I missed the bus or not. And it didn't matter that it was like five times further away. And I started spending more money on taxis and I started socializing less. And it really was, it, it really got to the point where it was just me and my music. And it was okay because that's what I was there to do. I really loved my music. It, it was, it was my, it was my partner, 
and I was okay with that. And then I went home and I was diagnosed with pulmonary arterial hypertension. That was a really long way of getting to that. I'm, I'm good at making uh, relatively simple points really long, so. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So tell me what pH is. So I got, um, I was diagnosed with pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is a thickening in the endothelial lining of the lung or the, the blood vessels of the lung, which makes it difficult to absorb oxygen properly. And it causes what I affectionately call the reverse crunch effect. My heart was three and a half times too big when I was diagnosed. 
physical activity becomes increasingly difficult and usually in two to five years, certainly without pay, without treatment, but even with treatment. I think when I was diagnosed, it was something like 70% of patients die. And so it is, it's very operatic. <laughs> it's very operatic. I went to see a top specialist here in New York, actually, who I didn't realize how well-intentioned she was, which she was, but she told me I had to stop singing, but the high notes were going to kill me, that there was nothing in the medical literature that backed up any sort of connection between singing or arias and pulmonary hypertension. And it made me happy if if I was only going to live a few more years or months because I was di- diagnosed to the stage four case. I was going to be happy, gosh darn it. I was going to do what I loved and I was not going to be ripped violently from this thing that I had dreamed of doing my whole life. And I I went to see a couple of more doctors. And then I found Radha Gerges at Johns Hopkins Hospital, who was running a trial at the time, which made things easier with insurance. And because having a, having a critical illness can easily bankrupt a family. I think he got me as a patient. He, he understood that he could trust me. You know, one of the hardest things is every, every time I went to the doctor, they'd ask me about my sex life and I'd be sitting there flanked by my mother and my father. And it didn't matter that I didn't have any history because the doctors, they never believed me, never before Dr. Gerges. I once had a doctor go into the hall, scream at my parents that like they couldn't be in the room because they insisted they needed to be in the room when I was having these, these interviews because I obviously didn't feel open enough and like comfortable enough around my parents to, to tell him about my sexual history because there was no way that I didn't have a sexual history at that point. And finally he sent me in alone with a nurse and I was like, yeah, no, I really don't have any, anything to tell you about. And Dr. Gerges, he asked me one question and I, I answered it and, and he knew he could trust me. And he said, if that, you know, if that situation changes, like just talk to me or talk to my nurse beforehand and we'll make sure that, that you have what you need, that you'll, so, so you're safe. But, you know, there's this whole conversation going on right now about trusting women. And it's true. Like, <laughs> it doesn't matter what we're talking about, especially, especially when it comes to sex. I think we don't trust women. We don't trust what they say. We don't trust their decision-making process. We don't trust that, that they're acting in their own and others' best interests. And in, in medicine, it's often the same way, but I was very grateful I found a doctor who did trust me. And so I enrolled in Peabody, after all, and I started receiving my treatment in Baltimore. So the approach was, let me take whatever treatment is available to me. And at the same time, I'm going to just keep pursuing this thing that I love and we'll see what happens. I, I was going to sing, gosh darn it. <laughs> And I was hoping this trial would be successful for the first six months or for the first three months. We seemed to be making progress. It was probably the placebo effect because after those first three months, the progress dropped off very rapidly. And over Thanksgiving, I really did not feel well. And I went to the doctors. They have to to diagnose pulmonary hypertension, they have to do a surgery. It's a small surgery. It's a catheterization where they slither this tube through your through your jugular to your your right ventricle 
uh, the right ventricle of your heart and through the right ventricle of your heart into your lung. And they measure the internal pulmonary pressures because while my external pressures in my arm were very low, within my lungs, they were very elevated. And when I was diagnosed, I think they were around 80. And by the time six months had elapsed on this trial, they were 146. And they're supposed to be between 15 and 25. So it, it, it was a big difference. You know, I'm all diva and everything I do, I do it big. So I had to go on this big gun drug for pulmonary hypertension, which is uh, administered through a pump, which weighs about five kilos. It was not ideal for singing and it was really hard to manage. You have to mix the medicine yourself and you have to keep it on ice all of the time. If you get a bubble in the medicine, when you mix it every day, you can die. If you go through a metal detector, you can die. It's very fast acting. It only works for about 45 seconds. The side effects are awful. You're covered in a hive-like rash all of the time. It makes everything taste like metal when you chew. You've a lot of people feel like they have flu, a flu the entire time they're on the medication. I had just started macrobiotics a few days before I went on the medication. I think it really alleviated a lot of the side effects that I know a lot of my fellow patients went through. And it's a very strict diet, which is like a whole grain-based diet where you you can't eat very much is the truth. And you have to like chew your food 20 times. It's a, or 50 times, excuse me. It's, it's really complicated, but it did help me a lot. You were performing at yeah, the same time. Yeah, I was performing. I stopped obviously when I went onto this medication because when I had that heart catheterization, they, they kind of put me inpatient almost immediately. And so I had to get a number of incompletes that semester. But within a few days I was walking again. Within a week I was singing again. And in a few months I debuted at the Kennedy Center. And so the medication worked, but I, I had to find a way of hiding it. The first time I sang just at a class recital after the surgery to insert this pump, I used to carry it around in, and my mom got me a Longchamp bag, which was, we did not do designer bags in the family with 11 kits. It's an easy way to cut, to cut expenses. But she, she thought that I needed something special. So I carried this Longchamp bag around with me everywhere. And I got up on stage on the little on the little platform to sing this aria for my class. And this girl who I think she was kind of well-intentioned, she also kind of did not understand why I carried around this bag with me all the time because I really cr tried to keep my disease quiet. She lunged for my bag <laughs> and she said, put down your silly bag. And she grabbed it and I was able to grab onto it before she pulled it away because it was attached surgically to me. and But she could rip it out. Like that definitely was a possibility. And it was then that I realized I needed to find a better solution when I performed. And so I'd get a girdle <laughs> and I'd put it on and I'd wrap the pump. I'd stuff it into the girdle on my thigh and, um, and I'd stuff the pump into the girdle and then I'd wrap it with an ACE bandage. And I'd do that when I performed. And, and so between scenes between numbers I'd go and I'd put it on ice but but that was that was my solution how did you feel when you would come up I mean was it exhausting when you came off stage after something like that I always found performing very invigorating I still do if I think I've been in oh like 
I, I've had, I, I think they're, they're, my husband counted them up. I've had 40 together with performances, readings, talks, and press stuff. I know over 50 things that I've done in the last month. And in between, I'm exhausted, you know, but when I'm in the midst of it, it's wonderful. And it, it gives me a great deal of energy, especially when I sing. And so for about two hours, three hours afterward, I'm, I'm floating. And then, then, then I collapse and I'm tired. At some point, even this therapy stops working. Yeah. So I'd gotten a fellowship to study in Italy from my university, from Johns Hopkins. And so I was in, in Florence, commuting between Florence and Milan, doing research. And then two days after I got there to do research, I met this great old conductor who started casting me in all of these roles. He really liked my voice, which was great. I think he also thought I was cute and that I should marry his son, who was 65 and I was 23. So that didn't end up working so well, but he was a wonderful, a wonderful conductor and very, very famous. And I learned a great deal from him. And then I got a fellowship to go and study with one of my musical heroes, Eva Marton, who's a, who's a very famous dramatic soprano in, back in Budapest on a Fulbright. And so I was commuting between Italy and, and Hungary, and I had, you know, performances all over Europe and in Israel too. And life was really good, complicated, but kind of like a, a comic opera, but wonderful. And then my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer late in 2008. And we were very close. He was kind of this epic figure in, in my family's life and, and sort of in history. He, he was a Holocaust survivor. He studied economics and he taught and then he ran for Congress and he was the only Holocaust survivor ever to serve in the U.S. Congress. And he was there for almost 30 years. And when he passed away, he was the chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee. And so it was this real rags to riches story, not riches, but because he was, he was never particularly wealthy, but he, he made a, a great difference in many people's lives and, and we were extraordinarily close. And so his death was very hard, but what came next was even worse. My father, exactly two months later, was, was driving in the mountains when his car malfunctioned and he had burns over 70% of his body and he, he, he died. And his death really precipitated my medical decline. I came back to the States. I hadn't been back to Colorado for years and years and years. The altitude exacerbated my symptoms, but I had to go back and say goodbye. But within a few weeks, I was showing signs of right heart failure. And I left knowing that I'd probably never see my home again. It wasn't all bad, like everything that happened in the wake of my, my father's and grandfather's deaths. Me and actually my two younger siblings, we, we all fell in love with our, with the people who are now our spouses at that time. And I think, I think you really sort of figure out who in your life is, is going to be there in, in hard times and, and in the easy ones when, when you face when you face loss. I had met my husband two years earlier on a political campaign that my sister and I just went out to volunteer for the weekend on. And he was lovely. He just was the loveliest man. I joked that we were going to create a Facebook page like women who will 
who like are willing to have Yoni Daron's babies. He was just the nicest man. And I wanted to set him up with every girl I knew who was more Jewish than I was, who was lovely. And I finally had that opportunity at a 4th of July party because he had broken up with his girlfriend and I knew the perfect girl for him. And it was so exciting. And they were going to fall in love and they were going to get married and they were going to have babies. It was going to be wonderful. And I was going to have orchestrated it all. Little did I know that the girl who he would end up with would be me. The girl who I wanted to set him up with didn't come. And the boy I invited as my date came with his own date. (laughs) And so Yoni was there, which was very convenient because it made it much less embarrassing. And near the end of the night, this drunk old lady came up to me and she was like, is that your boyfriend? And, um, And I was like, no, that... Any young lady who has the pleasure of being his girlfriend would be lucky for to, to have the job. And I just felt like I was being very magnanimous, you know. But it, I did feel that way, but I, but I did not feel like I would be that person. And Yoni looked at me and he said, really? And, and I was like, yes. And he said, would you feel that way about yourself? And I was like, ha, 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 let's change the subject. But very, very quickly, something something just happened and nothing happened that that night. And then he came the next morning and he waited for me at the airport for three hours, which if I would not have been awake all night thinking about him would have been the creepiest thing in the world. And I have had boys do things like that where I was just like, you really shouldn't have. Like, no, really, you shouldn't have. But I really, I loved him. I know that's so ridiculous to say, but I loved him. I'd never been in love before. But nothing happened again. And then he called me every day for the month and a half that I was at this music festival in Israel. And somehow he convinced me to come and visit him and his parents on Long Island. And he was late to pick me up at the airport. I almost got back onto the plane and went down to DC, but I didn't. And that night we kissed for the first time and I threw up. It was, <laughs> it was awful, <laughs> but it was so funny. I thought it was worth the story. I knew I'd never see him again, but then the relationship stuck. We've been together for almost 10 years now. He, he's a sucker for punishment, but we're, we're pretty happy most of the time. So uh, when I'm not dying, we're pretty happy. So Tell me what else was going on around then, because you come home, you meet him, and that—that that is a wonderful thing that happens at yeah, the same time. Yeah, yeah. So I'm dying at the same time, which isn't so fun. And within a year, I—I I desperately need a lung transplant. I do not want one, but I get to this impasse where Doctor Curtis tells me, like, you—you either need a transplant or you're going to die. And I have another one of these sort of spiritual realizations that—that that he's right. And so I go on the wait list. And I'm going to go to Cleveland to wait for the lungs. The average wait at that point was about a thousand days. And we got a call the next morning. They just changed the scoring system. So you got organs instead of, instead of organs being allocated by how long you've been waiting. Organs for, for lungs, they're allocated on the basis of how sick patients are. And I was very, very sick whether I realized it or not. And so I was not very happy about this development, but I was rushed to Cleveland. My family tried to get there in time. They, they, my, my sister came with me on the, on the medevac 
but the, my mother wasn't there and the rest of my family wasn't there. So I didn't get to say goodbye to most of, most of my family. And when I went into surgery, it was a 13 and a half hour surgery. I was on every form of life support available. 40 pints of blood were infused into my body. And when my surgeon finally emerged from the operating room, he told my poor mother that it was too late, that it was unlikely I would survive. My chest was left open for two weeks, and you could see my oversized heart beating inside. I had an infection that ravaged my skin. But 34 days later, I, I woke up. I couldn't walk or talk or eat. I couldn't move. I couldn't even breathe. I certainly couldn't sing. But when I looked up, I, I saw these three figures, and I didn't know if they were angels or people, and then... The center figure, I, I squinted and I, I could tell it was it was my mother and I realized I was alive. And in the midst of the, the terror of, of not being able to breathe, not being able to talk, not being able to do anything, I did have this immense gratitude because I realized I was alive. And it would be two months before I could breathe on my own. And it was uh, over 100 days before I'd go home. But I did. I never thought I would do it again. But I went home to Denver. That was, that, that was the beginning of, of the next chapter or the next act. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. One of the reasons, I mean, there are all sorts of reasons early to be concerned about double lung transplant. Was one of them for you, in addition to what you're sort of like any other person would go through, was part of your hesitation, not health, but you'd spent your life, like the, these were the instruments of the expression of your passion. Yeah, I'd, I'd spent my whole life learning how to breathe, is the truth. And, and having these lungs that I had trained at this point since I was three years old to work with my body, to, to facilitate breath, to, to facilitate sound, to facilitate music and expression, like was the worst thing in the world. It, 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 when, when people say things are the worst thing in the world, I, I think that it's usually an exaggeration now. <laughs> I hadn't gone through election 2016 when I thought it was the worst thing in the world. But at that time in my life, it was the worst thing in the world. And I couldn't, I couldn't imagine having to retrain my entire body. And that's, that's what I had to do. Did you think emerging from the surgery when you realize, oh, I'm actually alive, and then 100 days later you go home to Denver. In your mind, because I'm sure you had conversations with your mom and with your surgical team and your doctors, like, can I ever, like, first, of course, is like, will I be able to live okay? But eventually when that question starts to look like, you know, yes. I, I'm alive, I'm going to continue yes. on, like, yes. will I ever sing again? Yes, you know, the, the hospital is this, amazing evolution of emotion. So first, you're just grateful to be alive and to see these people that you love and who care for you and that you care for again. And then then it begins, like the grind of, of staying alive continues. And, and you realize you're a part of that, of that path and, and it's really hard. And then you realize... At some point, I am going to go home and I am going to have to find myself and my life again. I'm not going to have this whole cast of characters of nurses and doctors and techs and respiratory therapists and physical therapists and occupational therapists and janitors and cooks and, and administrators, you know, looking out for me. I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to be doing this on my own. And I need to figure out what that path is going to look like. And about three weeks before I went home, maybe two weeks before I went home, and I could finally speak again, which was, gosh, as you can tell, I like to talk. And not being able to talk for months at a time was extraordinarily challenging. But the idea of not being able to sing in certain respects was even more frightening than not being able to talk. And I had had a tube going down my throat for months because I was on a respirator. And I asked the nurse who was on call, who I'd become friendly with, if I would be able to sing in the same way. And she said, you know, 
And and she said, do you really want to know the answer? And I said, yes, I, I need to be able to mentally and emotionally prepare for this. And she said, people don't sound the same after they've been on a respirator. You know, it it, it messes with, with your vocal cords. You know, if you had those tubes, those breathing tubes going down your throat first, and then you know, if you if you have to have a tracheotomy afterwards, it it just won't be the same. I think that was the hardest moment of that entire hospital stay, and there were some really bleak moments. But but the idea that everything that I had worked for was for naught, in a way, you know, my whole life had been about music and about making music and bringing music into the world, and I and I really felt like I had this voice that was made to sing and the idea that that was destroyed was devastating. Nonetheless, about three weeks after I got home, I decided that I was going to try and sing. I had this kind of traumatic (laughs) experience around a reality TV show, but that's another story. And I I decided that this was kind of going to be my way of of healing from, from that whole experience. And I started Sing Smile by Charlie Chaplin, made famous by Nat King Cole. And the words are just, you know, smile when your heart is aching. I don't know how many, can I, can I quote it on the show? I don't sure. know. Oh, good. Smile, smile when your heart is aching. Smile when your heart is breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by. I think everybody knows the song. It's a great song. And I had this wisp of a voice. It was tiny. It was totally different from this big, booming sound that I had become so accustomed to creating. But I started practicing every day. And I went from being able to barely, barely get through a single song, breathing every other word, to singing for a whole minute, to singing for two, to singing for four. And I'd double, double my time about every three days that I was singing, double the amount of time. And then my mom agreed to a performance without me knowing it. I thought I would wait a year before I'd perform. And she agreed to a performance. I think it was three months after I got home from the hospital, which seemed really soon. Maybe it was four months after I got home from the hospital. Nonetheless, it seemed really, really soon. And I got there and I went back to my teacher first. And and when I when I got there, I thought it was for my doctors, but there were over a thousand people there and there were some journalists in the audience. And while it wasn't the best singing of my entire life, I don't think I'd ever felt more proud of a performance. And it went really well. Like the audience went crazy. They loved it. And soon the story went kind of viral and I was fielding invitations all across the country and all around the world. And and it was really exciting. Yeah. So it's everything's coming back. The universe is rallying back to support you. Yeah. And yeah. the career returns, the voice returns. And you're on stage also with new lungs and without the I guess now, well, because of the transplant, you're on a different medication regime because you have to be for anti-rejection. But at the same time, the the, the device and the pick lines and stuff like yeah. that were no longer a part of your... Yeah, it, it, was, it was a different experience of performance. And they were different lungs. So especially with the first transplant, it was that the experience of singing just felt very different. They... They never felt like they were quite my lungs. I never felt like I got a full breath. And so breath support and control, it always felt a little further outside of my grasp. 
than it had before the transplant. I, I don't think that those lungs and, and I, we, I don't think, I know this sounds strange, but we didn't know each other that well. And, and they actually didn't fit that well. They, the surgery, one of the reasons it was so complicated is they had to trim the lungs and then sew them shut. And so they were like too big for your body. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't realize it at the time, but I'd lost a lot of weight before the transplant and the measurements had happened when I weighed about, about 15 pounds more than I did when I finally got the transplant. So they worked and I sang well, but they never, they still never felt like they were quite my own. Things went really well anyways. And my career was was building and I had requests from Universal Music to do an album and I got a card at my first performance from this man who had a little goatee and he said, call me, you're gonna, you're gonna open a big TED conference this fall. And I'd been in Europe before all of this happened. And then I had been falling in love and dying the one year I was in the States. So I had no idea what a TED conference was. And so I was like, who's TED? Like, I I think I actually asked him that. And so I ended up sending him an email and he connected me to this fellow named Richard Saul Werman and his partner at the time, whose name was Mark Hodosh. And so I, I ended up opening a big TED conference, which also kind of changed my career and it thrust me into the arena of not only singing but public speaking which I it was a good it was a good match and this experience of making music and telling my story was in many respects what I had been primed to do I just didn't know it and so I'd I'd do concert work and then I'd sing and I'd tell my story and it was great. And then I got the flu and I started rejecting my lungs. And so it's literally like you get one virus and everything changes. So it's not always like that, you know, but this time that's how it happened. And I had one nurse, I have had an incredible cast of nurses and doctors who have by and large been just amazingly attentive and caring and decent. But I kept on calling this nurse about who was my transplant nurse or one of my transplant nurses, because one of them was great, about this bug that didn't that I couldn't seem to shake. And the nurse kept on brushing it off and saying, oh, you know, these things just happen sometimes. You just have to let it run its course, which felt contrary to everything I'd heard about transplant. And, and also, I mean, the part of the medication that you have to take when you have a transplant is, is essentially suppresses your immune system. Exactly, exactly. And so before I knew it, this infection had turned to full-fledged chronic rejection, which meant my lungs were irreparably damaged. Now, everyone who has a transplant goes into rejection. I've been in rejection for two years and my lung function is pretty close to the same as what it was two years ago. This rejection is very slow and it could take you know, 25 years to to run its course before I would need another transplant. So rejection is part of everyone's life in different respects. And in transplant, rejecting the organs inside of your body is also just a part of, of what life will eventually bring, especially for lung transplants. But this was a very rapid rejection. And I could feel my body declining with, not with every, well, yes, with every day, because you, you blow in a sp- into a spirometer every day when you have a transplant. And I could see the very slow but precipitous downward march of the numbers. And it would just be like one one 
thousandth of a of a liter less than it was the day before, but or or four thousandths of a liter less than it was the day before. But instead of it being this consistent line, it, it was this downward march. And then in April of twenty eleven, I got an invitation to debut at Lincoln Center, which was really exciting, but I didn't know if I'd make it because I knew I was sick. And I'd been traveling and doing a lot of public speaking, and but I, I really wanted to get there. And so that that became my goal. So it was, it was interesting. It was another one of these times where everything was wonderful. My career was blowing up. I got engaged the next month to this man who had been by my side through all of this drama and trauma and personal disaster, but he'd also been able to be there during a lot of the triumph, which was wonderful to share with someone who had shared so many challenges with me. And so we we were engaged to be married and and I was getting ready for my Lincoln Center debut and I was in, you know, two to three cities, sometimes a week, sometimes a month, depending on which week or month it was, and singing or or talking. And so life was life was good. I was I was making a lot of money. Everything everything was lovely, except I I could feel my body declining and dying. And by by September, which was the beginning of the month where I was supposed to make my debut, I couldn't do more than sit in like the corner of my apartment and try to breathe. But it's inexplicably I could still sink which was very, very unexpected. And so once a day I'd take off my oxygen. I think I was on like 10 or 15 liters at the time. And I'd belt out the aria from La Traviata that I was slated to sing at my debut. And after there's a final high E flat at the end of the aria. And after singing it, I'd kind of crumple back into my heap and start breathing again. I just didn't know how I was going get, to get to Lincoln Center <laughs> alive. It was this. It, it was challenging. It was dying is a is an ugly. And yet sport. you went to Lincoln Center. Yeah, I did it. I did it. My my doctors pumped me full of antibiotics and steroids, and um, and they did it. It was it was you know debuts can be a big letdown. You're a bit of a musician. You know how that goes when when y- you put all of this work and effort into something, and then you do it, and maybe it goes really well, but it's done. And it's just a letdown. You know, sometimes I've heard books can be like that too for people that regardless of what happens, you've had this thing that you've been working on and toward for such a long time. And then and then you finally get there and you do it and it's done. And it's and it's just it's kind of sad. It's it's like a kid graduating from some institution where where it's just further away and they're not gonna be a part of your life in the same way anymore. And and it's a little bit sad, you know. This debut was not like that. This this was exactly what I always imagined a debut would be like and so much more. I, I remember afterward, I was just tingling with excitement. I was on a lot of steroids at the time, so that could have been it. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a wonderful, a wonderful moment. But then I was I was dying really soon again. And I, I walked down the aisle later that week. And so I was married, but it was hard. You know, workplaces are not particularly accommodating of sickness in homes. You know, if that family medical leave doesn't kick in for six months and my husband was just starting a a new job, which was very challenging at the time because his, his colleagues 
didn't know him well enough to feel a great deal of compassion for what we were going through. So he was working very long hours. He'd, you know, take me to the living room and put me on the couch and make me breakfast and prepare my lunch and um, put on my oxygen and leave at seven in the morning. And then oftentimes he'd get back at 10 and 11 o'clock at night and he'd make sure I ate dinner. And then he'd take me to our bedroom and he'd put on my pajamas for me because I couldn't do it for myself. It was a very lonely time waiting for a transplant because you don't know whether you're preparing to live or die. I think it's always easier when we have some expectation of what the end of the path looks like. It was a, and I, I guess dying is something we all have to do, but dying, dying early or, or going through the process of dying early does feel particularly cruel. So from there, you're still here and we're talking. Yeah, so I got I got another transplant. They they pumped me full of drugs in the hospital. On Christmas Eve I went into the hospital and I I hallucinated so much. It, for for a young lady who like never drank and never did any drugs. I have done so many drugs now. I've done them all. You know, when they're talking about all the opioids and the opioid crisis, it's hard for me to relate to cuz I hate being on opioids. Like hate it so much and I got off of them as quickly as I could but I've I've done I've done everything I've done fentanyl I've done oxycodone oxycontin uh, uh, like all of the oxys all of the vicodin like vicodin I've done everything but because my doctors needed me under or needed me and it's it's funny because I've I hallucinated a lot in the hospital. And so like one day everyone was from Star Wars. Like my little sister was a baby Ewok. And one day I thought I was in the CEO of the hospital's house with him and his wife doing a big fundraiser. And for some reason I was lying on their kitchen, their kitchen table. And there were just one hallucination after another. And then there would be these moments of clarity. But but I didn't think I'd make it out of the hospital alive, but I did. I got a, a match. I got a transplant. And it has been a wonderful match from the first breath I took. It it felt like a better match than my first transplant. So I feel very, very, very fortunate. Yeah. And did you feel, and coming out of that, did you wonder again whether you would sing? No. I knew I would sing. I knew I would sing. I knew I would breathe. I knew I would live. And I knew it was going to be easier, and and it was, especially for the first, you know, three and a half years, it was a lot easier. But one of the things with transplant is since it weakens your immune system, it also makes you a prime candidate for cancer. And so three and a half years after my first transplant, I'd, I'd recorded a top-selling Billboard classical album, and I'd just signed this big book deal. And my husband and I, we'd been living in, in Harlem. He founded a company with his cousin early on in our marriage about a year after he started that first job that that was very difficult when when I was sick and and so he had been kind of managing me more or less full time and then his company really started to to take off it's called branching minds and so we were here because he was doing tech stars which is one of these big incubators and we got home in that fall. I had a freckle. You have to keep really close track of your your skin and your, I don't know, your, your body when you've had a transplant. And the freckle started to change. So I went to my dermatologist who did a biopsy. And in the time it took to like conduct the biopsy and do everything else, the freckle turned to like the size of a kumquat in the middle of my forehead. And they removed it. But 
I love eyebrows. I think eyebrows are like the most important things in the fa- on a face. And it destroyed my right eyebrow. And I thought it was like the worst thing. And it was very, very traumatic. And then in January, I felt like a pin. At first I felt pain. And then I felt like a pinhead in my jaw hinge. And in two weeks, it grew to the size of my fist. And the cancer had metastasized to my parotid gland. So that needed to be removed and my facial nerve needed to be cut. And so it was this whole, this whole new process of coming to know myself and and understand who we are and what we value and and how we identify as women because beauty is so much a part of what we are brought up to be and to have my physical presence changed so quickly it felt like going through the aging process in a matter of months instead of over decades and decades and decades of time it is hard to be a woman It's really hard to be a woman sometimes, but I will say that this experience has brought me to this place of peace and understanding. And I realized that, that the people who I wouldn't want in my life anyways, aren't as interested in being in my life. And the people who I would want in my life are, I I think might find it easier to connect with me than they did when I looked like a pageant queen. And so it's it's been a very interesting process. And that you know, this year we had the book, and so I've been I've been traveling the country with that of of late. And I've I debuted it at Symphony Hall this fall. But yeah, life's a crazy journey. It's a crazy journey. And in, in the middle of that there was also a moment where you took the stage with the daughter of the woman who donated your lungs. That was just a few weeks ago, actually. So about about a year after my second transplant, I met the young woman who's whom I who I am alive because of. And it's a complicated family story. You know, death is life is rarely simple and neither is death. And so but I was able to connect with her. And then in August of not this year, but last year, I was able to connect with her two other children who had been adopted by a a wonderful family in Ohio. And then this past fall, because her daughter's names are Esperanza, which is which is hope in Spanish, and her other daughter is Eden Faith. And so it's it's Faith, Hope and Charity, which is kind of ridiculous and fabulous and wonderful that they they both have beautiful voices, but Esperanza and I have been singing together for a while, but we'd never performed. And so this fall, we were able to take the stage and and to sing together. And Esperanza never, she was never able to know her mother very well. Her parents divorced when she was about three years old. But it's been this, I think, really healing experience for both of us because my first transplant, I, I definitely felt the the weight of the passing of the person whose lungs I had and the sorrow of their family. And the second time, I just felt this immense sense of gratitude. And so to be able to to connect with the family of my donor in such a real way where where we are able to be part of, of one another's lives. I, you know, I went to Esperanza's wedding and she just had her first baby this past year. And, and to be able to see Eden and her brother Odin grow up and, and to get to know their family and to be a part of their lives. I think it's, I think it's been very healing for, for all of us. And certainly it has 
it has for me. And so, but Esperanza has a wonderful voice. So yeah, that, that happened and it was, it was magic. But I think more than anything, transplant reminds us of how connected we are as a human family. I, I breathe with the lungs of, of an immigrant. You know, she's, I have one adopted sister, Dulcia, the one who took me to the opera when I was a little girl. She's from Honduras and they were in our congregation growing up. And my donor is also from Honduras. And she, she was an American citizen because she married an American. But it knows no, you know, transplant knows no, no race or creed or color. On the inside, we, we are, we are matched because of our genetic similarities to people who seem on the outside totally different from ourselves. And we're connect, uh, I'm now connected to these people with totally different lives and beliefs than I do. You know, Esperanza's an evangelical Christian who's kind of not, politics aren't her thing. And Eden and Odin's family, you know, their, their political beliefs are, are different than, than my own. But I think we, we all believe in in our responsibility to one another as as members of of the same human race and and so it's it's been it's been a really wonderful thing for me to get to know them so as we sit here this conversation is part of good life project so uh, if i offer the phrase out to live a good life what comes up for me living a good life it's about creation it's about making things it's uh, whether it's whether it's sound or or beauty or or wonder whether whether it's family or children i think to create is our birthright and i don't think to create is our birthright to create is our birthright and i it it's contingent upon each of us to find what exactly it is we're supposed to create my mom created 11 babies <laughs> And that was her great act of creation. I create sound and music and stories. And, and we, each, we each have something to offer and something to give and something to leave behind to make the world a little bit better. And so to me, that's, that's what it's about. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we've included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode and then share the Good Life Project love with friends. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.